Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. I'm in Germany, thinking about how Germany changed the course of history. No, not that history. Before that, Germany gave us some of our most influential thinkers. People like Kant, Hegel, Schopenhauer, Heidegger, Nietzsche, Marx. Why was that? In fact, for good or for bad, many of the ideas and problems of modern life a focus on the individual, a concern with industrialism, an emphasis on nations and national identity. Even the idea of a rebellious spirit arose out of a small area in the middle of a yet-to-be-unified Germany. In this small area, a crucible of modernity and a reaction to it emerged. We've come here to explore all of this, and it starts with the Enlightenment, because during those tumultuous years, Germany became a great critic of the dominant cultures that surrounded it, British and French culture in particular. I want to look at how that critical culture emerged, look at some of the romanticist and irrationalist philosophies it produced, ask what it gave us, ask how it might help us, why it's still an important model of human behaviour for us that we can learn from today. Whereas England and France have a claim to having a single coherent national narrative, a national story of a sort, Germany's is much more fragmented, as it was a loose collection of Germanic principalities and states until it was unified only in 1871. Goethe, Germany's answer to Shakespeare, wrote, Germany, where is it? I do not know where to find such a country. 
the Bavarians fought with the French, for example, during the Napoleonic Wars, and before that, the Germanic people had been traumatised by the widespread devastation of the Thirty Years' War, which largely took place on German soil, included every major European power and complex alliances of different states and monarchies, leagues, empires and principalities, and around 20% of Europe's population died during that war. In some areas, that was as high as 60%. Okay, so Germany was fractured, but its real modern history begins with a reaction. A reaction against the French with their enlightened, dominant, enlightenment, rationalist culture. And against the British with its empiricists and scientists and its great empire. What did the Germans have? It had an inferiority complex and it was invaded by Napoleon and occupied in totality by 1812. The Germans were forced to fight for the French in Russia, but it was a complicated situation. Many young radicals were supporters of the revolution in France. Liberty, equality, fraternity was the cool of the day. Then Napoleon came. Many went from celebrating Napoleon to hating him, from wanting to be French to wanting to be rid of the French. This complex resentment of the French philosophs and French authority led to a flourishing of German ideas that emerged as a reaction to the Enlightenment, which many German thinkers characterised as overbearing, condescending, a building of systems of domination. It wasn't rejected. Kant, of course, was German, but modern theories of philosophy began taking on a different shape in Germany. But the shape the response took needed its own fertile soil. Some ideas that were, well, German. And where better to look for those ideas? Inside and in the soil. The ideas of the Enlightenment, whether in Immanuel Kant's system of rationality, Newton's scientific laws of gravity and motion, or Spinoza's all-regulating metaphysics, were felt by many German thinkers to be distant, abstract, cold theories. They seemed to be completely void of the vitality of ordinary life, too concerned with mathematics or technical language than with the felt immediacy of everyday routines, the vicissitudes, the colours, the passions of human existence. And so, German thinkers began to look both to their close surroundings and inwards towards themselves. The ideas first took root in two places, German landscape, German language and went on to include other close immediate phenomenon that they thought that the Enlightenment philosophers had neglected 
things like the everyday and the ordinary, emotion, sentiment, uh, the undecidable, mystery, the irrational, and spirituality. When the father of the Reformation, Martin Luther, first translated the Bible into German in 1534, he'd focused on everyday German vernacular, a bold move at a time when the church had been dominated by an exclusive High Latin. His new Bible became an instant bestseller, setting off a revolution in reading and a flourishing of the German language. In many ways, Germany's inferiority complex, with no colonies, no centralised states, no national newspapers, lots of small towns and villages in isolation, led to an insatiable appetite for books. Germans took refuge in the imagination more than anywhere else in Europe. Goethe said that the honourable public knows the extraordinary only through the novel. And Ludwig Tieck translated the great adventure novel Don Quixote into German. Books, of course, have this miraculous effect of turning yourself and your attention inwards towards the imagination and the self, in isolation from the world and outward to other people's lives, other worlds, other people's imaginations, simultaneously. Germans had also long instilled great significance in the landscape around them, in particular, the forest. The forests were powerful and life-giving, and beautiful and dangerous and contradictory, all at the same time. They were pregnant with mystery, they were midwife to history. They were a symbol of nature and everything that nature gives, and also a symbol of danger and, 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 and fear at the same time. It's no surprise then that many, if not almost all, in some sense of Grimm's fairy tales, came from, in a very real way, these very forests. In 1822, Caspar David Frederick painted a solitary figure, a simple landscape that's become one of Germany's most famous national paintings. The tree signifies so much, roots, stability, but also hardship, survival, that Roman defeat. It's both heroic and lonely. It's even been used as a symbol on German coins. The Germanic tribes beat the Romans from the cover of the German forests, the first act of resistance in the cultural memory, a national identity forming event. The German Romantics later idealised folk poetry and bucolic stories in which the landscape took a central role. The feeling of nature symbolised something reason could not quite capture. The contradictions and mysteries and traditions that seem to arise out of it, seemingly from everywhere and nowhere, developed not from rational consciousness but given by Mother Earth herself. 
The Brothers Grimm didn't write their fairy tales, Rapunzel, Hansel and Gretel, Little Red Riding Hood and Snow White among them. They went out like anthropologists, collecting them from locals. Jacob Grimm wrote, Nothing remains more perverse than the presumption inherent in writing or fabricating epic poetry, since it can only write itself. The Grimms also spent their lives creating the first German dictionary. Okay, I'm in Marburg, a place where the Grimm brothers wrote or collected a lot of their fairy tales. And that there is the Rapunzel Tower. Maybe I'll try and go up there. I'm going to sit and read Rapunzel under the Rapunzel Tower. Thankfully, they're all about two pages short. There's hundreds of them. They're all a lot darker. In the grim version, the prince falls from the tower into a bush of thorns and blinds himself. But they do live happily ever after. It's in this context of language, folk tales, and landscape that Germany began fermenting its own genre, its own distinctive type of critique, culture, and philosophy. And it's for this reason of immediacy, of experience, of feeling and seeing and being immersed in place that I wanted to come to Germany too. Because the central thinkers of this period in the late 18th century also felt this. They wanted adventure, escape, growth, experience, while also emphasising the domestic, the people and language. They acknowledged the contradiction of life being far and near simultaneously. Goethe longed for the Mediterranean. He wrote in some of the most famous lines in German poetry, Do you know the land where the lemon trees grow? In darkened leaves the gold oranges glow. A soft wind blows from the pale blue sky. The myrtle stands mute and the bay tree high. Do you know it well? It's there I'd be gone. In 1769, a young writer had set off on a voyage to an unknown destination. Johann Gottfried von Herder wrote, I go forth into the world as untroubled as an apostle or a philosopher, in order to see it. He anticipated Nietzsche when he later said, To the ships, you philosophers. He wanted to leave behind the static texts of his study and live. Goethe was so enamoured when he met Herder that he wrote, Alas, I'm still confined to prison, restricted by this great mass of books. You must escape from this confining world. He took images and journeys and language instead of abstract ideas. He said, what a wide scope for thought a ship, suspended between sky and sea, provides. Everything here adds wings to one's thoughts, gives them motion and an ample sphere. The fluttering sail, the ever-rolling ship, the rippling waves, the flying clouds, the broad, infinite atmosphere. 
on land, one is chained to a fixed point and restricted to the narrow limits of a situation. Herder wanted to go out and explore what he called living reason. He wanted to leave the dusty, abstract theories and deductions of his study and go out and explore and record the cultures and peoples and languages of the world. It's for this reason that he's a forerunner to today's anthropologists. He set off to explore the culture of the Earth, of all regions, times and peoples, forces, mingling, forms, Asiatic religion and chronology and polity and philosophy, Greek everything, Roman everything, northern religion, law, customs, warfare, honour, the Popish Age monks, erudition, the politics of China and Japan, the natural science of a new world, American customs, etc. A universal history of world culture. He wanted to collect folk songs and record culture in what he called testimonia. He said that each nation develops its own foundational documents according to its religions and traditions and concepts and they appear in poetic language with poetic ornamentation and rhythm, a national heritage of mythic songs and you had to study the origin of the nation's oldest and most noteworthy features. In studying how cultures had particular points of views and developed in distinctive ways, he anticipated thinkers like Hegel and Nietzsche and Foucault, and his focus on national identity at a very early stage made him the first real theorist of nationalism. In other words, Herder set off a difficult threat in history. The Enlightenment was a period of creation, self-creation, nation creation, the creation of new models of behaviour, of machines, sciences, theories, of constructing rational replacements for traditional ways of doing things that many were seeing as defunct, privileges replaced with politics, superstition replaced with science, religion replaced with ethics an age of revolutions. The philosophical question of importance was how these new ideas, new systems were formed. Kant's influential response was that we order the world through our reason. One of Kant's disciples, uh, Johann Gottlieb Fichte, took Kant's idea that we construct the world ourselves through our reason and argued that Kant didn't go far enough. He said that philosophers before had thought that the world was given to us, but there's no proof that that's the case at all. Instead, we construct the world ourselves as an eye full of irrepressible energy, full of self-activity, that the world is created not in the image of God or the image of science, but in the image of ourselves. Goethe wrote famously that I turn back into myself and I find a world, that within us were forces more powerful, more mysterious, more voluminous than anything we find outside of us. Philosopher Rudiger Safransky writes that Fichte wanted to spread among his listeners the desire to be an I, not a complacent, sentimental, passive I, however, 
but one that was dynamic, world-grounding, world-creating. We've just been into Jena, where Romanticism was born, where the first Romantic philosophers and novelists and poets all lived bohemian, controversial, scandalous lives. They lived together, writing and teaching and partying and walking up into the foothills that surround this uh, beautiful little town. Um, and it's where Fichte, uh, before the Romantics, taught, and his house is now a Romantic museum, and it's full of wonderful books and uh, artefacts, and there's a great anecdote in there where apparently uh, Fichte would say to his students, gentlemen, I want you to think the wall, and they'd all stare at the wall, and then he'd say, have you thought the wall? And they'd all nod, and he'd say, well, that was what you think of the person that was thinking the wall. In other words, there's only ever you thinking the wall. There's no real proof that the wall exists at all. All of this emphasis on the eye, on immediacy, on local culture and language and landscape, built up into a thunderous movement in the 1790s, a movement that became Romanticism. In all of this, we see something so often misunderstood, its significance understated, the effects of which define us today. The invention of a modern self, an I at the centre of a complex experience of the world, an I that feels like it's self-determining, free, desirous, torn between nature and city, between work and pleasure, between rootedness and wanderlust, what the Romantics called the finite, the everyday, the ordinary, and the infinite, the imagination, the spiritual, the universal, the glorious, the eternal, that something that feels bigger than ourselves. The Romantic theologian Frederick Schliermacher wrote that imagination is the highest and most original element in us. It's your imagination that creates the world for you. Schliermacher believed that our imagination could imagine the infinite in everything. The what if, the why can't I, the what happens when. It's the superhuman, the thing that taught us to fly, to build castles that rise into the air, the magic that preserves life itself. It's the wondrous story, the creation of new fantastical fictional worlds, the thing that imagines political utopias and destroys them. The imagination is infinite, but our lives are finite. The poet and philosopher Frederick Schlegel believed this too. He thought that while we were always trying to pursue or grasp the absolute as a kind of regulative ideal, something to move towards, whether that be absolute truth and knowledge, absolute security or friendship, because we're fallible, because we're insecure, because we're contradictory creatures with no real secure foundations for our knowledge, for our beliefs, that we're always stumbling around in the dark, 
we were doomed to never reach it. The human story wasn't just about science, logic, reason, industry, but had to be holistic. Philosophies had to contain both these things and the imagination, sentiments, had to combine grand national and global narratives with everyday life. A total story. Novalis wrote that by endowing the commonplace with a higher meaning, the ordinary with a mysterious respect, the known with the dignity of the unknown, the finite with the appearance of the infinite, I'm making it romantic. And it's for all these reasons that the romantics like to focus on the ordinary, the simple, the everyday, the seemingly mundane. Because with the right outlook, the right tools and instruments, even a single word, a single glance, a single speck of dirt contains something of the infinite, of the absolute. Absolute wisdom or truth can tell us something about the world. Wisdom is found everywhere, and it's for this same reason that the Brothers Grimm went all around this area, collecting hundreds of folk tales and fairy tales. They applied the Enlightenment ideal of organising and interpreting and studying the world, like Diderot had done in his encyclopaedia, to local myths and stories because they knew that these things passed down from generation to generation were just as important. The Romantic movement continued to develop through the early 19th century. It was the first to recognise some of the now common criticisms of modern life. Alienation, treating the world like a machine, disregarding our emotions and the environment focused on the I at the centre of life in a relationship with the world, popularising new ways of telling stories about our lives, giving support to the idea that each person mattered. All of this a contextual precondition maybe for the slow democratic reforms in Europe that followed. But many have also criticised Romanticism for leading to Nazism its focus on national identity, on blood and soil, for legitimising emotion, which can include obsessive passion, anger or pride. But, the Grimm's and Goethe might respond, turning into yourself and finding a world doesn't mean accepting all of that world for what it is. The Romantics grappled with the contradictions of life, instead of attempting to flatten them out into a one-dimensional experience that reduces everything to logical calculation. All of this set in motion a kind of a-rational trend, not anti-rational, but a-rational in philosophy, that focused on other things rather than just reason, and it led to people like Nietzsche and Schopenhauer and Heidegger and many other romantic movements that we're used to today. Without it, we wouldn't have people like Beethoven and we wouldn't have the kind of emotional orchestral music that we're so used to hearing in Hollywood films. And we wouldn't have people like Wordsworth who focused on poetry through tales of everyday lives, so democratic and new for the time. 
And while all of this seems quite inevitable to us today, we have to remember that it's not. History is never inevitable. Thank you as always for watching and a huge thanks of course as always to my patreons without which this just wouldn't be possible so if you want to see scripts if you want to chat in the discord server if you want your name in the credits but most of all if you just want to help support make this content then click the link in the description below if not you can like you can share you can leave a comment all those things that help the algorithm thank you so much and i'll see you next time on a budget we still deserve nice things quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands they have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at 50 dollars, luxurious italian leather bags and so much more plus quince only works with factories that use safe ethical and responsible manufacturing get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with quince go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365 day returns